rolling. Hello, welcome to the JB podcast, episode yeah. 30. Welcome, guys. We've got Luke Tullock here today. Uh, I'd say an old mate of mine, but mm. a, a, an associate of ours. Um, I don't really know him. I, I'm not going to say too much. <laughs> I'm going to let you introduce him. He's come to our Christmas parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I show up to the parties and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. You're the big dude at the parties. Um, but uh, Luke, well, I'm going to let you introduce yourself in a minute, but I guess it's uh, the, the focus of today is going to be around nutrition mm. and how we can be better at it and how everyday people can, can improve their nutrition. Yep. And then if time permits, we're also going to go into a bit of muscle building talk because they're kind of uh, in, linked, intimately linked. Um, but I'm here, Paul is here, and we've got T-Bone. Hello. Um, just a quick intro on JBs, if you want to get at us, we're down at 15 Underwood Avenue Botany, and you can get us online at junglebrothers.com. Uh, we're doing a bunch of great stuff there, check us out on Instagram and all that, and if you like the episode, tell a friend about it, share it, so that we can continue to provide the, the goodness for you guys. Um, Lukey, man, do you want to start with a bit of an intro on yourself? Sure. Uh, basically, I'm a PT. I got a background in neuroscience. I've been training people for about 12 years, I think, uh, in Sydney. And um, I've kind of moved into the uh, education game a little bit for other trainers, doing seminars, that kind of stuff, which I'm very lucky that people actually want to listen to what I got to say, uh, which is still a bit of a a bit of a high for me when people invite me to do a seminar or something, I'm buzzing because it's pretty wild if people actually want to listen to you and ask you questions and stuff. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. So you're a humble dude, I guess it would be I fair. try to be, yeah. I try to be, yeah. Tell me, what is a, when you say a background in neuroscience, mm. you studied neuroscience? Yeah, so when I went to uni, I started off with a uh, double degree in psychology and chemistry or biochem. And uh, basically just consolidated that and moved into neuroscience, uh, just transferred into that after a couple of years. Just uh, sort of streamlined the process a little bit. I was working as a PT at the same time as studying, so it was like carrying on a little bit. And the neuroscience degree was actually pretty flexible in what subjects I could choose, which is why I did that. So yeah. And what is neuroscience? There's a lot of ways you can uh, actually go about studying neuroscience. Like there's different branches of it. So you might think of neuroscience as like the sensory um, neuroscience where we learn about you know, how our senses work. So vision and taste and smell and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's stuff to do with behavioral neuroscience. And so, you know, what's the brain chemistry and the behaviors going on? What drives that from, from the brain's level? Uh, you can look at things like anatomy. So the, the anatomy of the brain and the spinal cord and all the nerves is actually really complex. And I, can't, I couldn't stand that stuff because it's a lot of rote learning. Right. So there's a lot of little branches you can actually take it in. Um, you know, so mine was pretty general, to be perfectly honest, and all the stuff that I focused on was more physiology-based, which is, I guess, how the different tissues in your body work. So that's kind of my angle and what the background that I took into trying to apply to training and nutrition and lifestyle. Yeah, okay. I guess it's important to point out too, because, you know, the for people listening, they hear the neuroscience piece and they're going to think, this guy looks like an academic. Yeah. But if anyone's checked your Instagram, you're pretty jacked full of muscle. <laughs> so you have yeah. an interest in, in, in bodybuilding or yeah. in, a, in a hypertrophy style approach to training? Yeah, that's kind of what I like to do. Um, I think any, any form of physical training is, is cool to me. 
Um, like I tried gymnastics for six months, right? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. It was actually a bit of a funny story because I started and I did that and I lost about six or seven kilos of muscle when I did that, right? <laughs> uh, so I went from about 97 kilos to about 90 or something like that. And there were a bunch of trainers who started at the gym at the same time as me, uh, as at the same time that I was doing this. And then after six months, I was like, oh, I'm not enjoying it that much. I really miss bodybuilding. And I went back to that. And I suddenly like put on that six or seven kilos again really quickly. And they're all like, bro, what's going on? Eh? What's, what's happening here? Yeah. Like, no, 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 that's how I used to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, don't know, you don't know. So, you know, I've tried that. Like I'd done a little bit of powerlifting and then I had a bit of a, a back injury and that kind of, you know, that was a bit of a struggle for me. Uh, massively into rugby, really love it. Uh, played it for a little bit as well when I was younger and then, you know, the back injury and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so I think like just physicality in general is really fun to me, but I, I like bodybuilding because it's one of those things where I can take what I'm learning and what's coming out in the literature at the moment. It's a burgeoning field in the scientific literature and you can literally take that and apply it in practice and see what, what comes of it. So I, that to me is very exciting. Right. Mm. So that, that, that pure scientific sort of perspective you can take on it is it really engages you. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, the, there's a, an art to it as well because the science is never going to tell you what you should do as an individual. It gives us mechanisms. It gives us averages. It gives us a very constrained uh, sort of set of parameters to, to learn about something. That's what science is. You've got to control variables so you can see what's causing what. But when you get into the real world, now you've got an individual who you don't know their unique combination of genetics and experiences and training age and, and all the other variables that go into it. So now you've got to somehow translate that and go, well, how is this applicable to the individual? And that's the cool thing about coaching. But to me, um, the people who go, oh, well, academics wouldn't know how to do stuff because it's just science and it's not in the trenches and all that. Well, you still need to know the stuff behind it. You still need to know the mechanisms and all of that. And that makes you a much better coach. It doesn't make you a good coach, but necessarily. You can be a good coach without knowing the science, but you kind of need both to be the best, I think. Yeah, it gives you a greater potential. Exactly, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you could, you could generalise and say that the fitness industry is full of people who are perhaps in the trenches, but who yeah. have missed out on the academic side. Yeah, that's my feeling. Is to get into fitness in Australia. Exactly, and you know, that's what, I mean, same thing happened to me. Like my story, I actually started doing a business degree when I left school and I did a year of it and I thought, I don't like this. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I like training and I like fitness. So I'm gonna be a personal trainer until I figure out what the hell I'm gonna do with my life. Mm -hmm. And so I became a trainer and like, you know, I guess that's a really, probably a really common story. Um, the difference is, is that you know, a year or two into being a trainer, I went back to uni so that I could learn more about that and get a bit more of an academic background. Uh, you know, so yeah, I think you're probably right. There's a lot of people in the trenches, but not enough probably taking care of the theory side of things. Yeah. Mm. Is it over checking out your Instagram actually stalking you? Yeah. And um, it's inspiring. One, one <laughs> thing I, um, I noticed is that um, you, you spend a, a lot of time uh, focusing on the basics. Yep. And given the fact that you have um, this education base, a lot of trainers don't. Mm. Um, it, that interested me, and it and it, re and it wasn't in. Uh, it was all very uh, easy to understand. Mm. Is that uh, because you're, you're you're choosing your 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 audience? You're talking in their language, or is it something that you? That you that that you truly believe that the that the you should be focusing on on these basics, uh, and would you? Uh, I would like to know what 
you would consider those those fundamentals when we're yeah. talking about diet and building muscle? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's a bit of both. I started out talking about the more complicated stuff and being a bit sciencey, I suppose, and uh, that stuff still excites me much more. But it, it's not really what's going to make or break anything. Um, so I think it, you know, originally I was really trying to speak to trainers, but I kind of slowly understood the more I presented that even if you feel like you've dumbed down something a lot, there's still people that you give this information to and they just sit there blankly and they have no idea what you're talking about. So I think it's a bit of perspective. There's something that I might have learned 10 years ago that to me is, is so basic and so everyday. It's like as, you know, to a trainer, it's like doing a squat, you know. But think about the person who's never seen or heard of a squat before and never done one before. Um, that's kind of the equivalent of what I'm dealing with when trying to communicate science and nutrition and stuff to the average person. So, I, you know, I, it's easy to, to, if you know what you're talking about, to get frustrated when people don't know what you're talking about. But I'd always think, you know, if people are genuinely curious and they're genuinely asking a question and they genuinely don't understand, you have an obligation to tell them those basics. So for me, I think the basics and the fundamentals and the principles are 100% what's gonna get you almost all of the way. And you'll see that with my own training and my own nutrition. Um, I don't do a lot of complicated stuff. I do the really simple stuff very consistently and I know what matters and what doesn't really matter that much. So I think it's probably a combination of both of those things you said where firstly, I need to make sure that the people I'm talking to understand it. I sort of see myself as someone who's in between the scientific world and the average Joe and the average coach who maybe doesn't have a lot of scientific literacy. Um, you know, we need more of those people to, to, to bridge, bridge both worlds, yeah, you know, to talk to the scientists and to talk to the general population and the, the average coach. Um, but at the same time, those fundamentals definitely do get you most of the way. Um, you know, so for me, it, when people are starting to worry about things like supplements and meal timing, I want to tear my hair out because I've gotten to where I am today and you could, I mean, like not being funny here, but i am got more muscle and I'm in better shape than 99% of people you'll ever see on the street, you know? <laughs> and I got that way by nailing basic shit. I don't do anything complicated. That's, that's all it is, you know? So yeah, I, I guess it's a bit of both. It's a really cool point. Mm. I like on your Instagram too, how you have that, you have the contrast between, you'll put like a, uh, like a, you make like little graphics yep. showing a, like, a, like a topic and then the studies and what the, study, what the studies found yep. and it's very scientific and then the next post will be you taking a selfie in the mirror hitting like a, uh, you know, a bodybuilding pose yeah. and talking about your, <laughs> yeah. you know, body composition and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that contrast is super cool. Yeah, I, you know what, I think it is cool but you know the funny thing is that I would put so much effort into these long posts that were fairly scientific that might have taken me a long time to research and, and takes a lot of knowledge into it and as soon as you put up a selfie with no caption man you get double the likes you get double the engagement it's funny you get so rewarded for it like all of a sudden I was like ah I get why, why chicks just like sit in their bikinis and guys take photos of themselves when they're looking as lean as they possibly can like I get it now yeah. Um, but yeah I think that combination probably helps because you know if you're someone who is scrolling through Instagram which is a very visual medium and uh, 
you, you go come across somebody's page that has a lot of writing and stuff on it, that's cool, but you're definitely gonna pay a little bit more attention if you see like, oh, this is what this guy actually looks like. So he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but he also looks the part. I think that helps. Break it up with a bit of eye candy. <laughs> you gotta try it, yeah, you gotta, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, sometimes when your posts come up and I'm like, oh, this is sick, and I start reading it and I'm like, oh, I'm not ready to, to, yeah. to digest this amount of information right now. Yep. So I'll, I'll keep scrolling. But in the back of my head, it reinforces Luke's the guy that knows stuff. Yeah. Like I'm like, he's a smart dude. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, dude. And I mean, I do that as well. You know, so like, I'm not immune to that either. It's just like probably a natural urge or something. I don't know. So you talk about basics and the basics mm. that have gotten you to where you are now. Yep. Let's, let's, have, let's talk about the basics of, of just nutrition. Mm. So I think of things in like I said, principles or fundamentals, and I like to think of it as a hierarchy. So everything matters. Everything matters to some extent. If you take a supplement or if you time your meals a certain way, it's gonna have an impact. It's just not gonna have as big an impact as getting the right amount of food in or you know, getting the right ratio of macronutrients, for example. So to me, the number one thing that people need to be worrying about is something like energy balance. Now, how you achieve energy balance is sort of open, it's a bit of a, more of an open-ended question. You don't have to count calories, um, but by the same token, you don't have to be low carb, you don't have to go keto, you don't have to do intermittent fasting, you don't have to do paleo. You could do any one of those things and achieve appropriate energy balance. But you know, if you're eating too much, uh, you, you're just taking in too many calories, um, regardless of whether you're getting too many calories from carbs or from fat, you're gonna experience problems or you're gonna expose yourself to having greater insulin resistance. You're gonna expose yourself to having greater uh, deposition of fat around your liver. All of those things, right? And that doesn't matter. The, the primary and most powerful thing you can do for your health is have appropriate energy balance, in my opinion. What, what does that mean? Is that, are you talking about the way you distribute the energy throughout the day or? Just the it, total amount. Right. Um, and I think actually what was a massive shift for most people that I work with is thinking about their energy balance on a weekly basis. Right. Hmm. So it's extending it over uh, one meal and over one day, but out to a week and thinking about it on that sort of level is just like a, a total paradigm shift for a lot of people. Um, and the reason is, is because you can achieve similar rates of, for example, fat loss or maintaining your weight if your weekly energy balance adds up. So if your total energy expenditure per week is a certain amount, let's call it 20,000 calories for the sake of maths, that's a lot of calories, but we'll call it that. Um, then whether you achieve that uh, by eating the exact same every single day, whether you eat a lot on two days and not so much on five days or any combination of, the, of that, um, you will still maintain your weight, you will still lose fat and that is really, really powerful because underscoring all of these fundamentals is whether or not you actually stick to your diet. So adherence is really the number one thing, right? So we're talking about trying to achieve energy balance, but by the same token, if I tell some people that they've got to count calories, they're not gonna do it. If I tell some people that they have to eat low carb, they might not be able to do it um, because we all have our own little preferences and lives going on, right? So for me, I might, uh, with quite a lot of my clients, I will actually allocate an eating strategy where we're eating less food and less overall calories five days a week and on the weekends, let's say Friday and Saturday, you can eat more. Now I can socialize and now it's easier to stick to my diet long term. 
So energy balance is fundamental, but making it achievable for people is also a, a really important Realistic. part of that. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's also why something why you were saying that uh, something like paleo or um, intermittent fasting can work because yep. you, because of the fact you can span something like that over. Like exactly right. You know, so you know, for some people uh, and their personalities, being able to count everything and be a bit robotic about it matches them perfectly. They love doing that sort of shit. So I'm like that. I'm happy to do that, right? Like it's like the academic side of me. I like being able to measure stuff. Um, but other people just need a simple rule that allows them to achieve energy balance. And if, if you have the paleo concept, to me that is quite ingenious because you simply go, could a caveman have eaten it? No, okay, you're not allowed to eat it then. It's a simple line in the sand, you don't cross it. And that just manages energy balance really well. And you know, fasting can work like that as well. When I diet, I use a combination of counting calories and intermittent fasting because I just find it easier to manage my appetite that way. Um, you know, so some people freak out when you say like low carb or paleo or whatever is not the be all end all, it's not the magic bullet. And they go, well shit, like that worked for me, like what, what do I do now? But it's actually very freeing because it means anything can work for you, provided you know the underlying principle of energy balance and how it's working. So now, if you wanted to do keto for a month and paleo for a month and then high carb for a month and count your calories for a month, all of those will work equally well provided you stick to it. So to me, that opens up the options and it makes it very freeing and quite liberating. I guess, I, I guess it'd be a good, good idea to give like a really, uh, a really basic understanding of, say, how, how paleo or how intermittent fasting or keto can affect somebody's uh, energy consumption. Yep. It makes sense to us, but for the person listening, they're like, well, how does that change what's actually going in? Could yep. you simplify that for us? Yeah, totally. Okay, so basically this is it. We have a certain amount of energy that is required to run all of the processes that keep us alive. That's called our basal metabolic rate. That just keeps you going. Uh, adding onto that is basically how much you move. We need to fund that. So if we add that on top and how much energy it costs to digest your food, we basically have your total daily energy expenditure. Okay, so that's gonna stay, uh, that's gonna keep you weight stable if you eat that amount of calories. Now, what governs how much food we eat is essentially our appetite, how satisfied we are. And so certain uh, styles of eating are gonna make you more satisfied and certain styles of eating are possibly gonna make you less satisfied and more likely to eat more calories. So if you ate 2000 calories of ice cream or 2000 calories of chicken breast, your weight will be the same. That's not gonna change. So you could get shredded on KFC if you wanted to. The problem is you're gonna be starving. You're not gonna feel good, right? So our energy, our satiety mechanisms, our hunger mechanisms, our brain recognizes um, you know, how much energy that is coming in, but it's not so good at handling certain food combinations in that sense. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of things that go into that, whether something's super tasty, obviously you're gonna eat more of it. Some things have a larger food volume that fill your belly up more and that makes you feel less hungry. So we can either take the approach of like, well, I'm just gonna put into my body the exact amount of calories that I need, or I'm gonna use a strategy that basically allows me to feel fuller or restricts how long I have to eat each day so that I, I can't eat as many calories. And that's the way I'm gonna control my energy intake, right? So if we, for example- that, that is just that last point, is assuming that the tendency is to eat too much. 
Yeah, totally. Right, yeah, so yeah, the yeah. goal is to restrict calories. Yeah, and I'll often talk in that context because 95% of people, that's what they're trying to do is like restrict calories to lose weight. Lose or, weight, Or, or control their weight, right? So, you know, if I eat paleo, what are my options? It's high fiber, low calorie vegetables. It's protein. Um, you know, things of that nature, right? Yeah. There's nothing that's really hyper palatable in there. There's nothing that combines super high fat with super high sugar. So ice cream is a great example of that. Yeah. The texture's great. It's high sugar. It's high fat. Chocolate milk. Chocolate milk. I mean, those things will, they're very easy to eat too much of, right? Um, whereas it's very hard to eat too much of like steak. spinach, yeah. steak, uh, that kind kale. of stuff. Kale. kale. <laughs> it's very hard to eat any kale. Ask my brother, he fucking hates kale. He's, I despise he's, kale. Yeah, he's like he's like all this fucking all this bullshit about kale being a superfood. He's like spinach was a fucking superfood yeah, before dude. kale was. Yeah, exactly. Well it's like kale's less tasty, so it must be better for you or something. Mm. I don't know what it is. And it's more expensive as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so there's ways we can manipulate that. Um, you know, to to take the intermittent fasting thing, it's like yeah, you can eat too many calories if you intermittent fast, totally. But it's much harder to eat too many calories when you're only allowed to eat for six hours a day versus 12 hours a day, right? Yeah. So we're just manipulating energy balance by changing these parameters of like, okay, what's the ratio of like high fiber satisfying foods we're eating? What's the ratio of how long we're allowed to eat? Uh, all of that sort of stuff. And that's how we're controlling hunger and that's how we're controlling energy in versus just measuring it all. So that, I mean, that's why I like counting calories because for me, I like eating ice cream. I like having chicken wings. I like drinking beer. I want to be able to fit that into my diet without, you know, going over what my brain thinks is an appropriate amount of energy. Uh, is an appropriate amount of energy. Yeah. Know? Like I don't feel super hungry if I drink two liters of beer. Uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't satisfy my hunger if I drink two liters of beer. Is what I mean. You know. Right. Whereas if I ate the same amount of calories as brown rice. You know, all of a sudden, I'm not eating that much more. You know? mm, yeah. Yeah. So you can manipulate all of those things, and I think it really depends on personality and lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the context for that individual is really important. It's super important, and you know, and as a coach, that's where the coaching comes in, yep. because all of those things work. So now the average person is going, well, what the fuck do I do? Yeah. Whereas if you've got a coach or someone who knows a little bit more, they go, right, Susie, I've seen a million people like you before. This is what your lifestyle's like. Um, you know, you've told me what your workday is like, the type of things you like to do socially, all that sort of stuff. I think this approach is probably going to work quite well for you. Let's try it out. You know, and that way you can get the best result for your client, whereas the same approach might not work for somebody else. So th these approaches, that when you're talking general population, people that want to shift weight, but for the rest of us that want to build muscle. Yeah. <laughs> what's the approach there? So the brain also controls your have parents from the cook islands or fiji yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a that's a good can, approach can we I go like back that. to the you can get shredded on kfc, on KFC. Yeah. <laughs> i kind of stopped listening after that yeah. hey. <laughs> guys the limit son yeah that's it but you know the, the other interesting thing is like once you spend enough time eating the right amount of food your brain recognizes that as like your, your satiety mechanisms, your, your hunger mechanisms and all that sort of stuff get more finely tuned. So for me, if I wanted to stay relatively lean and stay in shape, I actually don't need a track at all. Like it's sweet, my appetite takes care of it. If I eat way too much on a Saturday night, I don't feel hungry on Sunday. Yeah. You know, so I'm cool, I can remain weight stable. Whereas other people might have more difficulty with that. So if you're someone who is overweight mm -hmm. or obese, 
Um, those mechanisms are not so finely tuned and it, it has a lot to do with things like dopamine signaling and the level of receptors and all that kind of stuff. But to me, that's kind of a little bit meaningless because it reduces you to a chemical soup <laughs> when you, know, you still need to be responsible for your behavior at the end of the day. Yep. Um, but it can be much harder to feel satisfied by food. It's much harder for your brain to recognize how much energy is coming in if you are in that position. Um, but if you spend long enough eating an appropriate amount of food, then that becomes your brain's new norm. The thermostat is reset, and then you maybe don't have to track your food anymore, or you don't have to worry about it too much. We just went away to the US. I didn't train for a month, and we ate like fried chicken every day, speaking of Casey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, and lots of Mexican food, and I came back uh, two kilos lighter. You know what I mean? Like, so just because I'm able to manage my appetite a lot better. Um, so. You didn't do any training for four weeks? I trained twice, and the first time I did some split squats and I felt so sick that I almost had to stop because <laughs> <laughs> I just went too hard. Uh, and the second time we were in a shitty hotel gym and I pretty much, the dumbbells went up to like, I don't know, 20 kilos, so I couldn't really do that much. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so those, those are two training sessions in a month. Right on. Um, Is yeah. that something you can train then, I'm guessing? Like, let's say you're dealing with someone who's wanting to shift that kind of weight uh, and, I, and I know that um, the body adapts, yep. but is, are, there, are there things that you can implement while someone's eating, like teaching them how to, to be just a, awareness while they're eating mm. or being more intuitive about the way they feel after the food? It, it, does that come as part yeah. of it? Because it seems like a discipline in a, in a way as well. Oh, totally, man. But, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. So if we talk about the... Um, there's something called the biopsychosocial model, and this has been applied a lot to pain, which is a separate conversation, but essentially it means that there are biological factors involved. So there's brain chemistry stuff, there's um, gut hormones going on, there's all this sort of stuff. There's psychological factors involved, um, you know, so emotional eating, for example, that kind of thing, and there's social factors involved. Um, you know, so you have to think about all of those factors, okay? now. If, for example, there is a big block of chocolate in front of you and you're seeing it all the time, it's very difficult to not eat that chocolate. By simply putting it out of sight, it might be able to control some cravings, for example. Now that's got nothing to do with like, it could be anything, it could be chocolate or ice cream or chips or like even fruit. Um, so that's a psychological aspect of it that you can, you know, that's a little trick that you can use. Um, being mindful about when you're eating is another little trick. So to give you an example, there's been some research done where people using uh, social media while they're eating, they eat more food. <laughs> okay, it's, it's less mindful eating. So that's one trick you could use. You could say, okay, there's a rule. When I eat food, I'm gonna sit down and I'm not allowed to look at my phone. And you might eat less as a result. Um, there's things like uh, emotional links to food. So to give you an example, let's say when you were a kid, and this was really common when we would play sport, my parents never did it, but a lot of kids, if they played well on the weekend, they would get to go to Macca's or something afterwards. I've got a Mars bar, super, Mars bar and or a Coke. There you go, yep. super common. Soccer. How yeah. often did you get that? Not when I scored a goal like once a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you're probably right. But like for a lot of people, they might have that association of having done well, of a reward by having those foods. And so you might have this unique sort of attachment emotionally to that food. A really good example uh, that's often given is something like uh, grandma's apple pie, right? So you might associate grandma's apple pie with being look up, looked after, feeling loved, a nice summer's afternoon, um, you know, 
back in your childhood kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just things like that that might stick with you that make that food something that is... Nostalgic. Yeah, that is hard for you to not eat too much of. You know, so there's a lot that goes into it. Aside from anything else, there's just a lot of sugar and fat in it, and that just sets your reward mechanisms firing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's all these things that actually combine together. There's no one thing. But to answer your question, yeah, there's lots of little things that go into it, and I think engineering your food environment and knowing what you know, foods might be problem foods for you, things like that, can be really helpful in controlling and, and modifying your behavior. What's your problem food? You mentioned <laughs> where do we start? Chicken, <laughs> ice cream, beer, ice cream, hundred percent. I'm the same. Yeah, ice, ice cream. Every, I eat a liter of Messina in one sitting. Oh, you two have a lot in common. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Tea thinks one liter no for problem. pussies. He could do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So tonight, he said every week though. I yeah. can't do it. This is, no, but this is the problem, right? It's gotten even worse. So tonight, uh, at the Newtown Hotel, which is around the corner from my house, they give you a kilo of chicken wings for fifteen bucks, right? So I'm gonna go there <laughs> and I'm gonna drink a pint of beer and I'm gonna eat a kilo of chicken wings and then it's only a two to three minute walk down the road to Messina and I'm probably gonna get a litre of Messina and I'm probably gonna eat the entire litre. So <laughs> how much of your, your weekly quota does that take up? Do you have to not eat for two more days? Or? I'm pretty lucky in that my energy intake's very high. So I can, I can kind of handle that. But last time I did it, man, I mean, I don't feel good. I feel terrible afterwards, but I still do it. You know what I mean? Like we're not immune to it. We're, yeah. all, we're all just like monkeys with the same- The mouth pleasure's it, worth it. It's worth it, man. At the time, it's the best thing in the world. Yeah. I'd like to hang out with you. <laughs> it's a, well, that, I mean, that's an interesting- I'm telling you, 5 p.m., it's, <laughs> it's $15 a week. That's your hood, G. No, no. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting point though. So for, so you're almost a hundred kilos? What are you now? Yeah, well, coming back from the US, I'm about 94. Okay. So not quite there yet. But so you're a, mm. you're a heavy dude, you got low body fat, so yep. that means you're carrying plenty of muscle. Yep. Um, that then means that your total day, daily energy expenditure, your, your caloric requirement is quite high. Yeah, it's high. And then, so you know, you, like you I, some, I train reasonably hard and I walk a lot. I walk everywhere. Um, like by 10 a.m. I've done 10,000 steps, you know, so... That's not typical. So like people, today, I'm posting what I'm eating on Instagram today and it's not a typical day because I just told you that it's wing day. So, <laughs> but people really want to see it and I'm like, I don't see how this is going to help you because I can eat twice as much as you. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's foods that you yeah, probably don't, don't necessarily don't do I do. want. Yeah, I, don't, it's, I can understand why they want to see it, but I mean, it's like, listen, I, like, I really know what I'm doing here and I've got a lot of, you know, I've got, got a client at the moment who, has had to diet for a photo shoot on 1,200 calories. Now for me, I eat eight, eight to 900 calorie meals. You know, I mean, that's like not even on the same planet as her. Yeah. <clears throat> She's got 1,900 calories and she was literally tap dancing in the gym today. Like I'm not joking, she was dancing in the gym. And to me, that is absolute poverty calories. That is me <laughs> crawling everywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you got to all take that into account as well. Uh, I got a question. Um, I'm the newer PT who doesn't have that much connection with the scientific side. Mm. So say um, you work out um, the calories required to run your machine yep. and maintain body weight, and you need a lot and you can do all these things and eat. Um, going to the calorie output part, mm. one, like how do people scientifically calculate what a jog, mm -hmm. how much output there's gonna be for a jog as opposed to doing powerlifting one day? Yep. So how do we navigate that? And then like, how does that happen scientifically? And then secondly, 
how does the average Joe, what's a good model that an average Joe can um, Why do you like always say average Joe? That? Why do you guys say I have to use that term? Because <laughs> <laughs> you guys are all average. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to stick with average Joe. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, how's it an easy way for someone like myself or everybody to think about, I went for a run, like how can they calculate that yeah. to some bonus reward calories or not? Cool. Um, the, the answer is it's really hard. Mm. Um, so scientifically what you have to do, this will kind of answer the question a little bit, is you need to know how much oxygen has been taken in and how much carbon dioxide has been produced. Ah, uh, yes. So okay. we, call, yeah, 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 yeah. we call that like respiratory exchange and you, you quite literally have to have like- The machine. The machine, the, the gas exchange stuff hooked up okay. to you. That's how we know. Um, so that makes it obviously completely impractical for the average person to know exactly how many calories they've burned. So do not trust what your heart rate monitor says. Do not trust what the machine at the gym says, the cardio machine or whatever. It, it's not accurate for you. Mm. The way they calculate a lot of that stuff is just by taking averages. But, you know, obviously we're not average. Uh, we're, we could be either side of average. We could be the outlier on either side. You just don't know. So, and also, just to add to that, during weight training, you burn way less calories than you think you do. Uh, way, like I'm talking way, way less. Like you probably burn more calories going and doing your grocery shopping than you do during a weight training session in, in most cases. Um, so I don't like necessarily going on the output side of things to offset too much the input side of things because it's so easy on an intake level to, to just eat, out eat whatever you've, exercise you've done. Yeah. So for me, exercise is performance. Exercise is, um, you know, let's get fitter, let's get stronger, let's get better at whatever we're doing. In my case, it's let's preserve and or grow muscle. And then, you know, the, the general movement throughout the day, the 10,000, 15,000 steps or whatever that I do, that's also about health. That's about performance because it's me getting outside, which is good for my mental health. It's uh, general movement, which is a really powerful tool for your health in general in terms of aiding blood pressure and blood glucose and all of those kind of things. So yes, it does contribute to energy expenditure. Yes, it does matter. But you're going to have a really hard time out exercising your food intake mm. in most cases. And so I don't think you should necessarily be like, well, I, I walked for an extra half hour today so I can eat an extra 100 calories. I don't think that's the case. The way it's normally done in the science is that we use like, if you were just physically calculating how many calories you could eat each day, there's an activity multiplier that you can use. And they're quite broad. It'll be like, well, I, you know, you work out three times a week and you're moderately active or whatever. All those calculators do is they put you in a ballpark and they give you a figure. So your actual calorie needs might be something like 25 to 2,800 calories a day. The calculator might tell you 2,600. You don't know if that's actually accurate until you've spent a week or two consistently eating 2,600. If you're mm -hmm. losing weight, it's too low. If you're gaining weight, it's too high. If your weight's stable, it's just right. And that's where you gotta start, and that's as simple as that. But like I said, it all averages out. So this goes either way. If you have a day where you do tons of physical activity, I wouldn't necessarily recommend compensating for that by eating more. If you have a day where you blow your diet and you accidentally happen to eat a liter of Messina, uh, or have too many chicken wings, then I wouldn't necessarily try and compensate that for that the next day. You could do that, but you end up always playing catch up then. What I would do is I would just get straight back on your diet and straight back on what you were doing before. Because over a month, 
all of a sudden that doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't if we shit. look at the trend line, if we look at the average, you won't even remember it. You won't yeah. see it at all, which is why I like this idea of like, let's take the daily intake concept, let's go to a weekly intake concept. And if you fuck up, dude, in two weeks, it's not going to matter. You're not going to see any difference on the scales because it's going to average out. Yes. It'll be fine. That's so we're always playing with averages. That's a really cool point because we kind of, we try to do the same thing with training, right? It's not about like, what session did you do today? Yeah. It's like, did you train this week? Yeah. And have you kept that up over the six or 12 totally, month period? Man. Then you're going to see a result. And that's why, why I was saying before, I've gotten to where I've gotten because of consistency over time. That's all it is, right? So I don't sweat it if I can't train one day or if my session wasn't that great or whatever. I don't sweat it if I overeat accidentally sometimes. I just try and be as consistent as I can over time. And the, average do, the averages take care of it, right? That's very cool. Mm. I, I wanted just to add to Paul's query. Um, the, the, I think I, I look a little bit into, like I've tracked my own calories for a while and I've helped a few people in, in the gym do it on a very general kind of you know, sort of basis. Mm. And uh, I find it quite an interesting process. Um, I think something that, that's, that that strikes me as quite fascinating is that our, our BMR, like that basal metabolic rate, is pretty high. Like yep. when you look at, say you, do a, say you don't do any training that day, mm. or say you do do an hour and a half of jiu-jitsu, mm. or you do 60 minutes of jogging, um, compared to your BMR, the, the energy needs without the training, it's not a huge amount of difference, is there? No, it's it's actually not that much. It takes up the majority, doesn't it? It's like it our does. body uses a lot of energy <laughs> just to exist. Yeah, and yeah, definitely the most variable part is your physical activity. And that's gonna vary the most. The, the basal metabolic rate is gonna be more or less steady most of the time. And it's very much tied to weight as well, because it's just like, if you're bigger, there's more metabolism happening. And metabolism just means the chemical reactions that happen in your body. Right. So the bigger you are, there's more tissue, there's more chemical reactions happening. All of those got to be powered by something. Yeah. And so it's very much tied to size and weight and that sort of thing. Um, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's the, easily the biggest proportion, unless you're something like an endurance athlete who's training three to five hours a day or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think like, for, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of people will have a very difficult training session, like certainly weight training hard for 45 minutes or an hour is very difficult, but the amount of calories you burn compared to how hard it is, is so disappointing. Wow. It's so disappointing. Is that because there's rest periods exactly. and you're sitting around? Exactly. You know, um, so if you actually take the amount of time that you're active during a typical, say, bodybuilding session, um, we're, we're looking at, for someone my size, maybe 150 calories for a session. Oh. If I went walking for the same amount of time, I'd burn more calories. Like how many? No, two hundred. Yeah, okay. Something like that. Extra, like it'll be more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But the weight training session is way, way, way harder, and I'm obviously getting some unique benefits from that, and I'm growing muscle and all that sort of stuff. Yes, but it's really disappointing when you've trained super hard, and you haven't actually burned that many calories to show for it. It really disappoints a lot of people. Well, it's disappointing when you know, but if you yeah, know, if you, you don't know, it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you think um, is there a difference? Uh, like, so say that you know the twenty-four to forty-eight hours following mm. when there's recovery occurring, yep. is there more calories burned in that period after the weight training than there would be from, a, say, an, a, an aerobic effort? There is, but during the aerobic effort, you burn so many more calories that it actually still exceeds that wow. afterwards. So, um, 
basically it costs it costs oxygen to uh, restore your body back to its its normal level after you've finished weight training or doing um, something like a high intensity intervals or whatever, and we call that EPOC, excess post oxygen consumption. Basically, it just means that you spend more oxygen and more energy just trying to get your pH levels back, just trying to get you know all the metabolites cleared out and the muscle damage sorted out and all that stuff. Um, but yes, it does induce a higher cost in the recovery period after training hard with intervals of weights, but it still doesn't outweigh the pure effectiveness of, of the amount of calories you burn during doing something like low intensity cardio, for example. Wow. I made an Instagram post about this and I had some people furious. I think I, I remember, remember that, that one. They were yeah. angry. Yeah, I, yeah. Can't I argue with the data, man. I mean, sorry. <laughs> Do you get haters? Do you get people trolling? Oh, a little shit? bit. Not, not that much because I, I tend to present stuff. I'm not like, um, like I said, I tend to present the data and it's like, well, this is my take on it. This is the data. Take what you will sort of thing. Uh, I'm pretty open-minded. Like a lot of stuff works, you know. It just kind of depends whether it's appropriate for the context. Um, I don't. I never say like this is the only way to do something or this is this is how things are or whatever it is. I'm kind of. I use a lot of words like may and could and in the right situation and in this context and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I try to be pretty humble about it and I try not to make people feel stupid because there's so many people on social media that do that and I, I just can't yeah, stand it. There's some pretty like, strong opinions out there. Man, yeah, you know, even like I do Q and A's quite a lot of my stories that are very popular and people often message me and say, hey, thanks for answering my question, not making me feel like an idiot about it because a lot of them, I'll be honest, I get questions that I think are really simple and I'll roll my eyes at it and I'll be like, fuck's sake. And then I stop and I think, well, hang on, they don't, they don't know. Like, mm. why do I have to be a dick if I know and they don't know? Yeah. I think about myself discovering something about whatever, carbs or energy balance 10 years ago. I mean, I would have felt terrible if someone that knew more than me went, oh man, that's stupid or made me feel like an idiot for ask asking, so yeah. Your, your thing's bodybuilding. Do you, do you coach bodybuilders as well? Mostly physique stuff, yeah, right. mostly physique stuff, so. So physique is, is, bo is bodybuilding, but on a, what's the difference? Well, when I say physique, it's probably like, it's, it's people who maybe aspire to, to look like a bodybuilder, but maybe don't want to compete. Um, but I also do train like some competitors as well. Uh, but it's mostly just people who want to look good and it's generally the person who is a little bit more serious about it. Yeah. And you program for them as well? Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What, what are, what's, this, what's the secret to building muscle on a programming level, like the stuff that you're doing in the gym? Are there, because I know, you know, we've got the five by fives and yep. the hypertrophy phase and all this kind of stuff. Is there, and there's always this like, and you see it floating around all the time, these um, holy grails, mm. but is there a template that you tend to find yourself falling back onto because it's so, so damn good? Yeah, a little bit. Like, so I, this is the same concept as with the nutrition where a lot of things can work. And so we need to work out what's the common denominator between all of these programs that work to build muscle. And from what we understand, the principles of it are muscular tension, you've got to create tension on the muscle and there's got to be enough volume and there's got to be progression over time. So those are the three things, right? So let me kind of, this was also a paradigm shift that happened, I think it was around 2012 or something like that maybe a bit later, a study came out where they compared using 30% of your one rep max to failure versus 70% of your one rep max to failure. They got the same muscle growth between both groups. 
So this was like, okay, we're working in the 40 to 50 rep range versus the like 12, 10 to 12 rep range. And there was no difference in muscle growth. And if we look at the molecular reasons why the muscle grows, the main signal is sent by tension across muscle fibers. Um, since then, they've done quite a lot of work looking at like how many sets do you have to do, what's the most effective, and so we know that volume is a primary driver of growth. So once you've got that mechanical tension on the muscle, volume is then your primary driver of growth. If you can do more volume and recover from it, you'll grow faster, you'll get stronger faster. So you need to find for the individual, like how much can they tolerate? How much can they do? Um, and then obviously that just needs to get you know, more difficult over time. Um, so it ends up being that a lot of different programs satisfy those conditions. Um, and my own programming is unbelievably simple. Uh, again, people look, like you said, they look for the holy grail. They're like, oh, he must be doing something special because he knows all the stuff and uh, he's in decent shape or whatever. My program is the most boring thing you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> it is so boring and talk straightforward. Us, talk us through it. But, okay, so today I needed to do uh, about eight sets of work on my pressing movements, so like chest, and about eight sets of work on my back, and that's what I needed to achieve today. So I did four sets of weighted push-ups, I did four sets of pull-downs, I did four sets of uh, chest press with the dumbbells, and I did four sets of rows. That's it. There's nothing special. There's no special tempo, there's no special rest period, none of that shit. It was wow. like four by 10-ish across all of those. Um, and again, you do that consistently over time and it gets harder over time by increasing the weight on the bar, you're gonna get muscle growth. And that's as simple as it needs to be. Um, now. I like how you said, I needed to do, yeah. as in you have like, it's the minimum <laughs> effective dose. Well, that's, so that's what like, I needed to satisfy, yeah. So yeah. I think about, okay, let me, let me give you this. So on average, what we need to do is we need to get relatively close to muscle failure and I'll explain why in a second, but let me just give you the overview to start with. We need to, so if you take a set within a couple of reps of failure, I call that a hard working set. We need to do on each body part between 10 and 20 hard working sets per week for optimal growth on average for the average person. So now your exercise selection, your tempos, your rep ranges, all of that shit, you can work out from there. But as long as you're satisfying that, you're gonna grow. You get, that, that's kind of your, your, what you're trying to satisfy. So that's what I was trying to do with my session. I was like, right, I do two of those sessions a week. So if I'm doing eight sets uh, today on chest and I have another upper body session in this week that I already did where I did eight sets on chest, I've now got 16 sets of chest for this week. And I've satisfied that condition. I'm right in the middle of 10 to, 10 to 20 sets. Boom, that's it, done. Now, why do you need to go close to failure? This is because you need to put tension across as many fibers as possible. So what happens is your brain is super smart. It does not recruit all of your muscle fibers for every movement. If you picked up a pen right now and your brain recruited all of your muscle fibers, it wouldn't be a good thing. You'd throw <laughs> it through the roof, right? So your brain knows if something's light, it doesn't need to recruit all of your muscle fibers. But if you're lifting a weight, and let's say we're doing a 50 rep set, and the first 20, your brain's going, yeah, it's light. I don't need to recruit all my muscle fibers. But those muscle fibers start getting tired and they can't keep contracting. They can't keep contracting forever. So they get tired 
and your brain goes, okay, righto, those ones are tired, but we still need to keep lifting the weight, so let's recruit some other muscle fibers. Those ones get recruited and you keep lifting. Now eventually, you'll get to a point where your brain's run out of muscle fibers to recruit and that's when you hit failure. So by that logic, if you have gotten to failure or very, very close, your brain has recruited and placed mechanical tension across every available muscle fiber in that muscle that you're using. That's why you need to get close to failure. That's why the rep range doesn't really matter that much. Hmm. That's why if you do 30% 1RM to failure, you get the same muscle growth as if you do 70% 1RM to failure. It's all about the failure it's piece. It's all about the failure piece. Now you don't need to go all the way to failure, you probably need to get within maybe three or four reps of failure. On average, I try to get within two reps of failure um, just to make sure I've recruited everything. Um, now some rep ranges are gonna be, I think, still better to work in. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do 40 or 50 reps, firstly because it feels horrible and you kind of have to get through 35 reps before you get to the effective reps. Um, and again, I wouldn't always do sets of five reps because if you did like a heavy set of five, you're recruiting everything from the start because it's a heavy weight, right? Yeah. But that opens you up to risk of injury. There's, you know, if you misgroove a lift or something, you're, you're more likely to fail. And that's kind of where we come back to that traditional bodybuilding range of like eight to 12 reps. It still works really well because it's that happy medium where it's heavy enough that you can still keep progressing every week. Um, but it's not so heavy that you're opening yourself up to risk of injury or technical failure too, too early in the set. Um, so that tends to actually work quite well. But again, it doesn't really matter. I would, what I actually do with my clients is if they pick a weight and I've given them a rep range um, and they're like not close to failure when they hit my rep range, I make them keep going. Like if I tell you to do 10 reps, but you're not close to failure after 10 reps, like keep going, get 13, I don't care. 13 is going to be a better growth stimulus than 10. Yeah. If you get eight and then you're close to failure, that's cool too. You know, it doesn't matter. The 10's not a magic number. The magic thing is getting close to failure. So and that's basically muscle growth for you. So you keep, <clears throat> fuck, I love it. You keep that rep reserve up your sleeve. Just want to lift weights. Just now. because you can still get the same stimulus without <clears throat> risking getting yourself injured. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about it, if you're using very light weights, um, it's hard to progress the load on that. You know. So I'm trying to find something that. Firstly, I'm not gonna expose myself to injury. And it's not gonna be, like, I have to psych up if I'm gonna do a heavy set of five squatting, deadlifting, bench pressing. You know, I don't really need to do that if I'm doing 10 reps. Um, so it's that happy medium where it's heavy, but it's not super heavy, it's not too heavy. Now, there might be some independent mechanisms by which higher reps or lower reps can cause growth. We might get some preferential growth in different types of muscle fibers. Um, so to give you an example, if you produce a lot of uh, lactate, um, it can cause the cell, the muscle cell to swell up. So it changes um, basically how the, how the body stores water, in which compartments it stores water. And so it can cause the muscle cell to swell up. And when the muscle cell swells, it can sort of signal, it, it's perceived as a threat to the integrity of the muscle cell and the muscle cell produces more protein and grows. So that's, you know, heavy metabolite lactate producing workouts that burn a lot and give you a big pump, that could be a particular mechanism by which that works a bit. You know, and by the same token, if you're lifting very heavy, you might recruit more type two muscle fibers, the fast twitch fibers, right? So I still think over time, it's probably good to vary your rep ranges also because it keeps you engaged and fun and it's fun, right? So, you know, given all of this, like why would we ever do some of these fancy workouts that are like a post exhaustion where you do like you know, all these fancy or giant sets or like whatever it is, 
well, because it's engaging, you still got to enjoy your training. Mm. You still got to show up and do it and do it hard. Totally. If someone told me that I had to do, uh, you know, 30 reps and, and do it a certain way every single time I came into the gym, I wouldn't be very engaged and I wouldn't be very fired up and I wouldn't put in a high amount of effort. So as a coach or as a trainee, you still got to work out, well, what type of training do I enjoy? What am I going to get in and do and be consistent with? What can I progress with? What's going to make me put in a high amount of effort with my training? Um, and really, there's an endless amount of ways you can program, right? So, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so scientist, mm. chemicals, yep. muscle building. Yep. You must have done a bit of research on steroids. Yeah. Yep. So what's your thoughts on it? I'm asking you this because... Joe's been trying to put on muscle for a long time now. And I've, I've left no stone unturned but one. <laughs> this is what it's come to. <laughs> but uh, on a serious note, do you train, train people that, uh, that are on, on the yep. gear? And when you do, do you take the same approach or do you, do you have a different uh, style of, uh, of programming and nutrition for them? Um, it's mostly the same, uh, but generally it means that the ceiling of how much volume they can use is a bit higher than the average person and they recover a bit quicker. But the principle is still exactly the same. Um, yeah. What about side effects? Because there's mm. a lot of debate about whether there is side effects, whether there isn't. Yeah. Uh, it's, so here's the thing, is that a lot of the, it, everyone's going to have their own uh, reaction to using stuff. Right, so some people won't really experience very many side effects and other people will experience quite a lot. A lot of them, people try to uh, mitigate side effects like, uh, you know, when you, when you take uh, exogenous from, from outside the body, testosterone, it can be converted into estrogen. That's how men mostly get their estrogen is they convert testosterone um, via an, uh, an enzyme called aromatase in their body. So a lot of people try to limit estrogen because they think, oh, female hormone, it's going to give me gynecomastia, all this stuff. And actually, estrogen is extremely, extremely important for mediating the muscle growth side of things because it's, it's very helpful to prevent and help remodel, prevent muscle damage and help remodel muscle tissue. So actually, ironically, I think some of the, the side effects of having higher estrogen is probably what gives a lot of the anabolic properties to taking testosterone is that you actually have higher estrogen as well. Um, Everything's just higher then. Yeah, yeah, you know, pretty much. And so as far as side effects go, like, yeah, you will experience some side effects potentially. Um, you know, there's, there's things like, you know, acne, gynecomastia and, and potentially a faster rate of hair loss and things like that can happen. What about happen. the boobs? The yeah, so that's the gynecomastia. Yeah, so it's just a greater deposition of fatty tissue around. Seen the, them before? Yeah, around the nipples. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> still remember Meatloaf from Fight Club, <laughs> yeah. the character Bob. Yeah, yeah. 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 ex bodybuilder. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, some guys will take a small amount of testosterone and they'll see that immediately, and other guys just it won't Never be an it. issue at all. What about the testicles? Yeah, because I'm asking this because I if I you. do choose to go on steroids, yeah, they're, day, they're gone. Yeah, they'll well, shrink. Yeah, I don't want mine to shrink any more than they already are. <laughs> Bro, it's a small You've price got, to pay for greatness. Yeah, boy. <laughs> That's you true. Can do with a little loss there. Do you know what? I, I want to hold on to all my gains, bro. I uh, <laughs> participated in a study last year where they were comparing uh, people who had never used um, steroids. So that was a group I was in, and then there was a group who uh, had previously used steroids, and there was a group that uh, had 
used steroids at least once in the last six months. So we're trying to compare like uh, what were the changes in their cardiovascular health, in their body composition, in their testicle size, in their fertility, all that type of stuff. And so basically one of the things they did- So who was, measured your testicles? Yeah, that's what they did. <laughs> that's what they did. It was a, uh, one of the researchers, uh, this Indian lady had to, basically they got, they got a, it looks like a giant key ring. And they got a bunch of these like, basically grapes on them. They look like grapes anyway. And they literally go, it's ordered in size and they fill your balls and then they compare it like which number. Oh, they feel the grape relevant. They feel the grape and they're like, yep, yeah, that size. And that's what so I have to, you know. Wow. Yeah. Where do you look at your grape size? Were you impressed or were you like, oh, it didn't feel like that? <laughs> I mean, they were average. So, yeah, okay. you know, nothing to write home about, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously had ultrasound and all that stuff as well. But it was so, pretty cool because I got a DEXA scan out of it and I got a, a, a calcium scan for my heart and all that stuff as well. So I'm guessing your testicles stayed consistent throughout the test yeah. and the, the guys that were on the gear, they were shrinking? <laughs> they or? would shrink, yeah. Right. So they shrink um, because there's a big hormonal feedback loop. Um, and so when the body detects that it doesn't have to produce testosterone anymore, it just it re it reduces the amount of hormone that goes down to your balls to make sperm, basically. And is it doing that to protect itself or...? Yeah, it's just part of the way the hormonal feedback loops work in the body. So what happens is throughout your blood, you have little cells that are essentially sensors. They're monitors and they'll monitor the amount of blood glucose you have. They'll monitor things like blood pressure and they'll monitor hormonal levels. So if your brain detects that there is way too much testosterone in there, those sensors then send a message back to the brain and say, hey, uh, we've got way too much testosterone, stop producing testosterone. And so your brain stops making its own natural testosterone and it shuts down the whole thing. And of course, because you're injecting outside testosterone and your blood levels are always high, it doesn't get switched back on again until that leaves the blood. Hmm. So. so you can grow them back. You can get it back, you can get it back. But uh, the idea is like if you, so what the study was looking at as well is like if you stay shut down for a long time, I mean, does your fertility remain? So they're trying to compare the normal controls that the group I was in who haven't used to the people who had ceased using testosterone, does it come back if you stay off it for a certain amount of time? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Man, I want to go back to just a couple of things on the nutrition front. Yeah. Uh, I got a couple of, Couple of sort of rapid fire questions that I wanted to throw at you. Cool. And a lot of this is probably stuff that you were talking about. It was like shit that you learned 10 years ago. You're like, all right, <laughs> you still want me to talk about that? Yeah. Um, but I had a few people, uh, I, I let some people know in my circle that we're gonna have cool. you on and, they, and they, they threw some questions. Awesome. Um, I, oh, well, I guess a couple of very general questions. Given what you said about energy balance mm. and this relative kind of uh, simple concept yep. that, you, that you follow that, that has produced good results for you and for your, for your clients, what would you say is the number one misconception when it comes to losing body fat? Um, or the, the number one mistake people I make? I think the number one mistake is not paying attention to energy balance. And I think also uh, believing that you have to do one thing forever. So some people freak out and they go, I don't want to count calories. And I'm like, listen, if you do it for two weeks, it could change the rest of your life. Mm. Because suddenly you will realize what is in your peanut butter. You'll suddenly realize, oh shit, there's actually not that much protein in eggs. It's like 50% fat and 50% protein, a whole egg. Huh. You know, and that blows people's minds, they have no idea. It's like, dude, track for a week or two and you will learn so much about your current diet 
and it will give you so much insight. And you never have to track again if you don't want to. But I'm telling you, it is such a handy skill to have because then you, you suddenly understand and it, it makes your life so much easier. So I think it is probably um, you know, not being aware that energy balance is the primary thing they should be worrying about, but then feeling like, shit, I have to count calories if I need to look after energy balance. And this you is don't. me forever kind yeah, of Yeah, this is it, you know, and you don't have to do that. That's a great point. Good point. Um, what would you say is the number one, the number one thing people don't do or the number one mistake when people are trying to build muscle? So take, you know, take, let's yeah. say like the, the late 20s, early 30s guy. Average Joe. Lean, average, average Joe. Joe, if you will. <laughs> um, what's he doing wrong? Um, so this comes back to, you know, your brain manages uh, your food intake, both directions. I will put forward here, and you can fight me if you want, that <laughs> eating to gain size and being full all the time is worse than being hungry all the time. If yes. you have ever tried to put on weight and you have to eat in an energy surplus and you have to eat a meal when you are not hungry in the slightest, that is way worse it's torturous. than being in a deficit. It sucks, no end. So I think being consistently in an energy surplus, consistently being the key operative word, is probably the biggest mistake that people make. Um, it's very easy to overeat one or two days, but your brain will try and compensate for that. Remember the weekly thing. Like I said, if I eat a lot on a Saturday night or if I eat a lot today, which I probably will, I'm not gonna be very hungry tomorrow and you'll subconsciously eat less. And on average, you'll end at the end of the week, you'll be eucaloric or basically at energy balance. So I think consistently being in an energy surplus is probably the biggest mistake. So you're saying um, that you, if you are trying to build muscle, you're trying to gain weight, you need to be eating generally to that uncomfortable amount every day. Yeah, it will probably feel a bit uncomfortable for sure. And so I think people who are hard gainers basically just have highly tuned uh, appetite control. Yeah. You know? Like if you're 75 kilos and you just can't gain weight, it probably means your brain does a really, really good job of not letting you gain weight, you know? It's regulating your it's appetite. It's regulating your appetite really well. Um, you know, just like there are people who really struggle to lose weight because their brain is not so great at regulating that, same thing happens with people who are skinny trying to put on muscle. Does the brain, does the body get used to it? Does the brain get used to... Yeah. You can recalibrate it, right? So, so you get, it gets easier to keep eating. It does, things. yeah. But you've got to be consistent with it. So that's how long you reckon? Uh, I think it depends on the person. Mm. It really depends. Um, so you know, for me now, I could effortlessly, effortlessly maintain my weight around mid nineties, no problem. Um, but when I first started lifting weights, I was eighty kilos. You know, so I went from eighty to like maintaining my weight eighty one, eighty two, no matter what I did, to building it up to eighty six for a while. And after a while, I was 80, 88, 89. You know, I've gone all the way up to 105 kilos um, and kind of that was my norm. Mm -hmm. But you can reset that in either direction provided you're consistent enough. Yeah. Tell me this because I, like everything you've said, I agree with and I've, and I've seen it work and it's worked on myself. But then for like say some of the people that I've consulted mm -hmm. with on their nutrition and we've looked at, calorie targets and that kind of thing and used, you know, a very simple online calculator and whatnot. I've found, and I guess this has been, my experience with this has been with females mm. uh, who are carrying excess body fat. Yep. So they're carrying excess weight and they're grossly under eating. Mm. And then we get them, you know, adding, let's say 30% extra food to what yep. they're doing. 
and they feel like they're going to turn into a, you know, they're going to put on even more weight. Yeah. And miraculously, they just start shedding weight. Yeah, cool. How does that happen? Cool. I'm glad you asked that because I think probably a lot of people are thinking that. The first thing is that you may get better adherence when you give people more food. So they might actually just genuinely stick to what they're doing better. Um, we know that misreporting is a huge problem. It's often not a conscious thing. It's usually not a conscious thing, actually. Um, but we know that everybody misreports. doesn't matter. I misreport on my... I don't track everything perfectly, uh, even though I'm probably one of the best people on the planet at doing it, right? So that's the first thing. I think maybe you get better adherence when you give people more food. The second part is a really big piece of the puzzle. And this is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So we call it NEAT. It's often abbreviated to NEAT. And it's basically the exercise or the movements that you do that's not planned. So people often refer to daily steps as part of it, which is like sort of part of it, but it's also things like your posture, how much you fidget, how much you move around, whether you lean on things or whether you stand up tall. It's things that you cannot subconsciously control, or you cannot consciously control, sorry. It's all subconscious. Um, a huge part of NEAT you cannot control. Let me just reiterate that because people think it's just how many daily steps you take and it's not. Now, in some overfeeding studies, people respond differently to, to how much NEAT goes up or down. In one study, they had a bunch of people come in, they were overweight, and they put them in a metabolic ward so they could monitor everything that they were eating and all of the movement that they were doing. They overfed them by 1,000 calories a day, so a huge amount of food, right? Now, some people compensated to the tune of 700 calories increased activity, non-exercise activity, hmm. which reduced the surplus down to only 300 calories net after that. Some people didn't compensate nearly that much. So I would posit that it's probably a combination of people just staying on top of their food better and adhering much better on a consistent basis when you give them more food. And also they subconsciously move around much, much, much more. Wow. So this is a massive problem when we prepare people for bodybuilding shows or photo shoots or whatever. Sometimes you do give them more food and they actually lean out more. Because they start doing more stuff. Yeah, because if you're eating a, you know, 1,200 or 1,000 calories a day, your brain's going, uh-uh, I'm starving. Fucking shut it down. We're not moving. And that goes for, like I said, postural things and things you can't control as well. So you can, you can still give someone 20,000 steps a day. You're still going to get that adaptation where the brain just shuts it down a little bit. So that's probably a combination of those things. Very cool. Yeah. Is there any truth to that bro science piece of when you give your body a restricted amount of food, it, it goes into starvation mode and holds on to fat? Uh, or is that just not really no story? But what does happen is you do get metabolic adaptation. So I said before that your metabolic rate is largely tied to your size. So if we got the average 80 kilo person in here, we would know roughly how many calories they're expending as a basal metabolic rate because it's been validated that many times. It's so closely tied to weight, you're hardly going to get any variation on that on an individual basis. However, if we got an 80 kilo person who had not been dieting whatsoever, we would work out their calories almost exactly. It'd be easy. If we had someone who used to weigh 85 kilos and had been dieting for the past couple of months and gotten down to 80 kilos, our predictions would not be accurate. Their metabolism would actually be lower than what we predicted. We call that metabolic adaptation. 
So basically, when you diet and you restrict calories, your brain recognizes that you're restricting calories and it reduces your metabolic output. That goes right back to normal when you start eating maintenance calories again. Um, maximum it'll take is two weeks to get back to normal, absolute maximum. But that happens for sure. So it's, it's kind of, I guess you could call that starvation mode in a way, but it doesn't change the fact that if you're in a deficit, you're gonna be losing body fat, simple as that. Yeah, right. Um, and it's not, it's reversible as well. It's a normal metabolic adaptation, um, but your brain can basically restrict energy. And it's, it's how it triages it to tissues and stuff as well. So there's something called triage theory of micronutrition. And this was sort of popularized by a guy called Bruce Ames, who I think is now in his 90s. But he came up with, he was a cancer researcher, and he worked out that if you restrict certain micronutrients, it increases the risk of cancer in some tissues. And so what he worked out was that you might be able to eat a certain amount of micronutrients, but the body decides where those micronutrients go once you've eaten them. And some tissues are more important and some metabolic processes are more important than others. So if you only have a certain amount of zinc coming in and there's something that desperately needs zinc to keep you alive, guess where the zinc's going? And all the other tissues then like, sorry, you're last in line, you're not getting any. So your body triages that. And it turns out it probably happens with energy intake as well. So if you're eating a certain amount of energy, you have to fund physical activity. You have to fund the heartbeat, the lungs, the kidney, the liver. You have to fund all of that stuff first. There's no question about it. Brain gets, gets first dibs on all glucose coming in. Does 60% of calories go to the brain? Yeah, it's quite a lot. Roughly? Like it's a huge amount of, of glucose, like of a huge glucose. amount. Yeah, okay. it's a huge amount. Um, Things like immune system and reproductive system, not necessarily immediately required for survival. So especially reproductive system gets, gets shut down straight away if you're severely restricted in calories. So it's partly related to that as well, where you can get some weirdness happening with your metabolism and your health and all that sort of stuff if you're constantly restricting calories too. So yeah, okay. that, that also happens. Hi listeners, that actually concludes part one of this episode. We've cut this into two parts because Luke had so many awesome things to say, I think you might agree. You can catch the rest of our conversation with Luke in episode two, which will be out in a week. Now, if you need help with your training or want to get in contact with us, please go to junglebrothers.com and to find out more about Luke, his best point of contact is his Instagram. That's underscore Luke Tulloch. That's underscore L-U-K-E-T-U-L-L-O-C-H. Tune into the next episode. Thanks, guys.